Hello, friends. Today's guest on the podcast is Chad Andrews. Chad represents your everyman climber. He is also the man behind the Clipping Chains blog, where he interviews top climbers who balance careers with high-level climbing. Some of the guests he's had on his blog include Mike Doyle, which is how Chad and I connected, Jonathan Segrist, Paige Klassen, Tara Kersner, Steve Bechtel, Dave McLeod, and many others. Chad also writes articles about personal finance and shares insights and lessons he's learned along his path towards financial independence. One of the things that really impressed me about Chad when we started talking is that he is his own success story. He and his wife have managed to reach financial independence in their mid-30s. He effectively retired at age 35, and they no longer have to rely on a paycheck And it seems like they got to that point without sacrificing all that much. They were able to enjoy life, and he was able to continue climbing during that process, which I found super intriguing. We talked about the financial independence movement and how Chad first became interested in it. We talked about tracking your spending and how effective that simple habit can be at reducing your cost of living. We talked about setting aside three to six months of living costs and how that can create freedom to improve your work situation or even allow you to leave a job you hate. And we talked about the big three expenses that make up the majority of our living costs and a few simple things we can all do that can make a huge difference. And it's not skipping your morning latte or never doing anything fun again. I really appreciate Chad. He has a really pragmatic approach, and I think a lot of his insights could be really helpful for you guys. He also broke down some of the common misconceptions about the financial independence movement, and it's important to note that the stuff we talked about is not just for people with a high income or people who want to go all in. We all deal with money every day, and I wanted to make sure that people in any financial situation could take something away from this. I think some of the insights around reducing our living expenses could be really helpful for people struggling to find work right now or those who are in a tight financial situation during this COVID pandemic. I linked to a bunch of resources for you guys in the show notes. As I mentioned during the episode, you can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com under Chad's episode page. And be sure to check out Chad's blog at clippingchains.com. And I'll be sure to link to some of my favorite articles of his as well. Hope you guys like this one and I hope it helps. Please enjoy this fun and informative conversation with Chad Andrews. All right, Chad, we're rolling. Yeah, cool. Hi, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And like, like I was saying, you know, when we talked the other day on the phone, in terms of like climbers, you've had some absolute legends on the show, and I don't deserve to be in the same room with them at all. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you having me. I really do. This is awesome. <laughs> My pleasure. Well, I'm not just having you. You know, I'm not just having you on just because uh, I'm doing a favor or anything. I, I was really impressed sure. <laughs> talking to you, and I think you have a lot of really great insights that will be that were helpful for me, and I think they'll be helpful for a lot of people. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. I appreciate that. I thought you know we should probably start right off the bat with a background into your story, your financial independence, retiring early and and all that sort of stuff. But maybe before we go down that rabbit hole and I just let you tell your story, um, I was poking around on your website and 
I was reading about your dog. So you have a, you're married, you have a wife and it's you Uh and your wife and your dog. And on your website, you describe your dog as a sweet black lab street mutt who sounds like she is notorious for stealing food, <laughs> for stealthy food thieving skills. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your, is your dog's name Snickers? Not really. That's the name I give her on the website. Okay. I'm weird with her identity. Or whatever, but yeah, so it's not a real <laughs> You're name, protecting your no. dog's identity too. I know. Isn't I it weird? It. Like I'm more worried about her identity. I don't know. It's just, it's weird being on the internet. So the internet is a scary place. I understand. And like, you know, when you don't have children, your, your pets are like your children. So it's, it's strange. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, so she is, she is incredibly food driven, probably the most food driven dog, um, <laughs> I've ever come across and like I have all these like really embarrassing stories of me like you know walking walking the dog down the neighborhood walking by like you know nice looking mothers pushing around their babies and she's got like a pigeon in her mouth oh my gosh just like absolute gutter garbage out of the (laughs) and like she just picks up anything like if it it was if it's like a piece of tinfoil with like a drop of ketchup she's got it in her mouth just salivating walking down the road oh my god there's like jaws of steel so there's like no way no way you're getting it out and um yeah i mean anyone that's ever watched her knows like i always warn anyone like you're gonna get burnt just be ready for it she's super sneaky that is funny Uh, yeah she's stealthy but she's a great dog she's a lab mix we got her in Houston, Texas, off the streets, and uh, oh, that explains that, huh? Yeah, exactly. So she she's already a lab. Which she's is a, a survivor. Driven dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what the vet told us. They're like, labs are are food driven, but yours is probably going to be extra special because she was three months. <laughs> like she learned she learned how to live by eating garbage. So it's just. <laughs> And so to this day, she's a great dog. Other than that, like all my friends who I climb with, they all know, you know, we keep her tied up, but they watch their packs and I watch my pack and that's, that's life. That's yeah. funny. Has, has she gotten pickier over the years at all? Is she, have you noticed that she has any favorite foods that she goes after or is it just anything? Nope. No, it anything. doesn't matter. Well, we, we went to the park the other night and we had a big scare because all of a sudden she got home. She didn't have motor control. She was like pissing on herself. And it's getting warm here. And we thought maybe there had been some tall grass. I kind of let her off leash when nobody was around, let her run around. I thought maybe she got bit by a snake. Hmm. And so I was freaking out. We called the emergency vet because it was after hours. And uh, they're immediately like, oh, that was marijuana. And I'm like, marijuana? Like, I'm sorry. But, you know, I was a little, like, a little taken aback. I'm like, we we don't smoke marijuana. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, not anymore. (laughs) And, uh And, and, and then she's like, no, it, you know, it's, it's Colorado. So you know how it is. Like she could have picked up some ashes on the ground oh, wow. and eaten them. And sure enough, I Googled the, the symptoms and she had every exact symptom and took her like a couple of days to get over it. Oh, that's incredible. I think, I think she just like got some weed off the ground. Huh? So she'll eat anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did she have the munchies after that? Did she go on a total bender? Well, it's hard to say because she always does. But <laughs> no, no, for a couple of days, she was really reluctant to eat. And she kind of, oh, she, she threw up. It was pretty bad. Like dogs don't, aren't into it like we are. So, um, yeah, you got to be careful with them. <laughs> gotcha. Good to know. All right. Well, I will certainly have given an introduction to you in the intro. So people will have some idea of your background and, and kind of what you're sure. bringing to the table. But yeah, if you wouldn't okay. mind, I'll just kind of give you the reins. I'd love to hear your story and, and kind of how you transitioned into this newfound interest into financial independence and retiring early and all that. Yeah. Um, I guess my, I, I like to think I represent like 
you know, the average climber in the sense that we, we look at a lot of magazines and we see a lot of cool stories and people who, you know, seem to just climb nonstop and travel nonstop, like the pros and things like that, and maybe even yourself, which is very, you know, and we all are like lust for that. But I think the majority of us still go to work Monday through Friday, um, you know, climb on the weekends, take our two to whatever many weeks of vacation and try to make the best of it. And that was me, just like so many others for many years. I actually started my career in Houston, Texas in 2010, and I started climbing the exact same month, the same week. Okay. Yeah. I, I'd come from uh, grad school in northern Arizona, and I loved it there. And it was like there was a big climbing scene, but I was not into it at all. And this was coming out of the uh, last recession, actually, which is interesting timing now that we're undoubtedly in another one now. Hmm. So this was kind of out of the ashes of the last recession. And I took a job I didn't really want to want to do. I ended up, I'm a, I'm a geologist by training, and I ended up in the oil and gas industry, which I never in a million years thought I would do. I wanted to go the academic track and be a professor and do all this stuff. And it was just like so much uncertainty at the time. I was like, ah, you know, I'll do this for like a three years or something and then go back to school, hopefully. I got down there. And started climbing at the same time because I no longer had an, like a natural outdoors outlet that I used to have in all the other places I'd lived prior to then. I was always very outdoorsy, but I wasn't a climber. I knew climbers. I knew about the climbing scene, but I always thought it was like way too sceny for me. <laughs> um, I just like being out in the woods. I was into backpacking and like I'd peak bagging and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So I started climbing the gyms and like I was immediately hooked, like mega hooked. And <laughs> it's just kind of how I am. Uh, when I get into something, I don't do it half-heartedly at all. I just don't. And uh, so I just got really psyched on climbing. And I was climbing the gyms. And I pretty soon thereafter was going out to Austin almost every weekend. And I had a crew of guys. We were going out there like every week. And we'd do like seven-hour road trips. <laughs> um, like three and a half hours there. Climb all day. Like sweaty as hell. Like 100 degrees. 100% humidity. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Jump in the river and then drive home. <laughs> And, um, nice. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd stop in Austin and get margaritas too. Nice. But anyway, um, yeah. And so, but after a few years of that, I was like, man, this is not like, this is not what I want to do. I could see the writing on the wall. Like I saw guys that were doing this stuff 30, 40 years and some people were really into it, but I just knew it wasn't a good fit for me. Like the corporate life, especially the office life, it wasn't so much the work I was doing. It was just the office and kind of corporate grind. And so I started really looking to get out of Houston. I wanted to get back in the mountains. So I was able to get a job here in the Front Range, Colorado. And that, to make a long story short, I was really fortunate to get that. And so I ended up here. And that, that did it for a while. I was climbing a ton. Obviously, there's tons of climbing here. It was easy to do. I didn't have to drive three and a half hours anymore. So that was a huge improvement. But I still... It still wasn't clicking with my work life. And, you know, when you're doing something 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week, when you start including not just the time you're in the office, but the commuting time, um, you know, if you're getting food ready to eat at work, you got to, that all counts. The stress you bring home after 5 p.m., that all counts. So when you start adding up all the time that was spent doing that sort of thing and not doing other things that maybe are more important, like your family or your friends or your sports, I, you know, I started getting really interested on, on ways I could somehow shift. And I had actually, when I was in Houston, like, you know, like many young climbers, I was like, I got serious lust for like the dirt bag kind of like van life kind of lifestyle. I really did. And I actually mm. literally brought this up with my wife on a number of occasions. Like, let's just do it. Like you guys are already married it, at this point. 
No, so we got married the year we moved to Colorado. So we weren't married yet. We were probably engaged. Okay. And I was like, honey, let's just do it. You know, like there's so many good stories. People make it work. Like we're smart people. We'll make it work. And I don't doubt that, that maybe we would have. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I was like, ah, financially, it just seems like a huge risk. Like we're making good money. Let's just stay on. And I had a lot of resent for that. I'm like, man, you know, I feel like I'm chasing a paycheck. I feel like I'm staying too comfortable. And then in 2015, oil prices collapsed. And in my industry, that was very bad news. Not as bad as they are now, but they collapsed from like $100 a barrel down to like 30. And that was huge. Hmm. And so there were mass layoffs. So for about a year, two years, really, I mean, the last five years, it's just been on and off again, layoffs in that industry. And I managed to more or less avoid them all. I did have to jump companies a few times to avoid moving back to Houston. But basically, with the job being so insecure and the fact that I didn't love it anyway, I mean, it's really easy to imagine how you end up on Google, right? And uh, like, how can I get out of this situation? And I... (laughs) Yeah, and I had a friend um, at the same time. We were kind of cut from the same cloth. He's still in the industry, but we have a lot of the same ideas on the subject. And he found this website called Mr. Money Mustache. And this guy is now legendary. He's not the first one to come up with these concepts of saving enough to retire early. But he certainly made it very presentable. And he has this like kind of moniker where he talks about always wanting to punch you in the face. Like He has a very much a pick-you-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of... Like, you know, get your ass in gear. Your life is filled with waste. You're spending money on crap you don't need. Save money. Wisely invest it. Don't be stupid. Like, he's he's that kind of guy. Okay. And that really, appeal, that really appealed to me. Like, I'm... I Just I, a no bullshit, just blunt in your face. Exactly. Okay. Like, that's totally, that's totally me. Like, that's, that's <laughs> my style. I kind of write that way myself. Even though I care deeply, I respond well to that personally. And so, and, and this finally was like, I'd kind of been getting into investing over the years because... I had a little bit, you know, we were making more money than we needed. And so I knew I needed to do something with that money. And I was kind of tinkering. But here was this very approachable guy. Because I think, I think there's this image of the investor as like a guy in a suit, you know, with a briefcase and mm. kind of chachi, you know, like going to meetings. But in sure. many people, yeah. But I, I really like this idea of just this guy. I mean, he lives in Longmont, Colorado. He rides his bike everywhere, you know, like... He's super, he's outdoorsy. And I'm like, man, I relate to that. Hmm. And so just like with climbing, I went head over heels for this instantly. I talked to my wife at first. She was like, I don't know. It's like, we need to stop eating now. We're spending too much money. This, we're, we're wasting money. Honey, we could, if we saved all that money and we got into some simple investing, we could be done with our careers if we wanted to in like, you know, five, 10 years, maybe 12, 15 years. I don't know, but it'll work. She's like, ah, but and real quick, Chad, when you, when you say this, you mean there is kind of a movement, right? This whole financial independence retire yes. early. I've heard that. As, yeah. It's even an acronym, right? This fire thing. Fire. Yeah. Which I'm not, you know, it, it's catchy. It's <laughs> yeah. catchy. Right. Right. But I, I, I hate to use it because it gets a bad rap. And I think it's the early retirement part that actually gets it a bad rap. Okay. It's, it's the thing that brings people to it, but it also draws the most ire. Um, Interesting. Be- because I think people think it's like a millennial movement for people who don't want to work. Got it. Yeah. And I completely agree. I think there is a bit of that. So it is a very big movement now, especially in the last two to three years, I'd say. But when I stumbled upon it, it was certainly growing, but it was not mainstream at all. And I think you're going to find it a lot more in mainstream media now. So, yeah, it's a very much a movement. And so, you know, I fell for it just because I knew I was in work that I didn't want to do for 40 years. I, I do want to work, 
but I didn't want to do that kind of work forever. Mm. And me personally, I couldn't accept the risk, the financial risk of just stopping that on my own without a very large financial cushion. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we started doing. Yeah. So I don't know where you want to go from there. I mean, that that's kind of the backstory on why we started doing this. And, and yeah, as of February of this year, I did leave that job. We got to a point where we could comfortably call ourselves financially independent, but I would never, ever, ever call myself retired. Okay. And that's just simply because you enjoy work. You don't, your goal is not to not work. Yes. Okay. I think work is a fundamental aspect of happiness. That's actually probably what I'm more obsessed with more than climbing or more than financial independence or any of this stuff. I think for me, it's all about the pursuit of like, what really makes us happy? Like, what are we really chasing in life? Hmm. I think that's what I'm really fascinated with. And I do think doing things that are hard and challenging and getting uncomfortable almost every day, I think it's an absolute requirement. Hmm. And so right now, this project, this website is what I consider work. I don't get paid for it, but I get far more joy out of waking up to do to write about this stuff and help people than I ever did waking up to go to work. That's for sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background and context into your website and maybe what your vision is for it? Like where yeah. it is now and what your vision is for it? Sure. Well, you know, they always, I've always wanted to write. I've had this idea of writing for a long time, but I didn't really see a path of viability. The same thing, you know, I, writers notoriously don't get paid very well. So it was another one of these ideas I've always had in my head. And they say, write about the things you care the most about, right? Or you know the most about. And so I know about climbing. And over the last five years, I've, I've learned a hell of a lot more about personal finance. So I decided about two years ago, well, a year and a half ago, to start this website where I would merge those topics because I knew that the financial independence movement was growing, but I didn't think a whole lot of climbers knew about it. And even though there's tons of bloggers and tons of people making content about this, I think it's all about relatability because like I said with the money mustache guy, like he's all about like, you know, no bullshit in your face, but some people aren't going to relate to that. And Mm -hmm. so everyone has their story or someone they're going to relate to more. And I thought, Hey, there might be some climbers that would really be down with this message because I, like I said, I do think I, in many ways represent the more average climber, the person who's working a job Monday through Friday and just wants to climb more and would love to climb more or spend more time with their family. So I was like, well, I can talk about how this kind of financial independence movement could relate to a, a lifestyle that would allow more climbing if that's what you want to do or whatever work you want to do. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. It's freedom. And I think climbers love the idea of freedom. <laughs> yeah, Certainly. Yeah. Let's back up a step then. I, I would love to, uh, to hear more about you know, as you got excited about this and decided to kind of go all in on it, what did that look like? I mean, I I know that you have an article that breaks down your investment strategy and some of the nuts and bolts and some of the specifics, but I'd be curious to hear in broad strokes. So you're working this job and you just decide, you and your wife decide to prioritize investing a bigger percentage of your paychecks and really doubling down on that. And, you know, within seven years, you get to a point where um, you no longer have to work anymore unless you choose to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so the basic premise of it, if we take like a, a bird's eye view of the whole concept, is that you try and maximize your, sav- maximize your savings rate. Because one thing that is that is very clear in any data, especially in America, but worldwide, any kind of developed society, is that when people make more money, they generally spend more money. Hmm. 
And I think we all, when we don't have any money, it's easy to point the finger and say, ah, you know, rich people with all their stuff. But the truth is, and it's shown many times over in the data, is that usually when people get more money, they will buy things. Now, it may not be a Rolex. It might be like the nicest van in the lot, but it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll get spent, you know? Right. And, and, and I think we've all seen this to some degree. I mean, unless you're just now coming out of college or whatever and, you know, you're used to that kind of frugal lifestyle. But if you've ever gone and gotten a job that pays more than, you, you know, maybe more than $20,000, I think we've all seen how that creep can happen. Mm-hmm. And so we knew it was happening. We were naturally frugal. I will, I will say that in the interest of disclosure. It's not like we were like crazy spenders and we have some amazing story of reining it in. We reined a lot in, but we didn't rein in. You know, we weren't going nuts. We were going out to eat a lot. I worked in the restaurant industry for about a decade, and I love food. I think food's an art. I think food is worth paying for, and I was paying too much for it. I was doing it too often to really get that much more incremental value out of the purchase, right? Hmm. And so you start – the first thing I always tell people is to to go and and, – and to track your spending. And we can talk more about that when, you know, if we wanted to get into specific kind of uh, recommendations. But I think most people have no idea how much they really spend on things until they track it. Just mm. like weighing yourself, right? And so I'm getting off on a tangent. But anyway, so the bird's eye view is to just increase your savings rate. And so the next part is what you do with those savings. So let's just say you can bump your savings up from 10 to 30%. That's a big change. And I'd argue for a lot of people, it's not that difficult. Hmm. What you do with those savings is you don't just park it in your checking account or your savings account because that money is losing to inflation, right? Because every year, the stuff you buy gets more expensive. It's just, those are just natural economic forces. So you want to get your money outpacing inflation. And the best way to do that is to invest it. And there's a lot of ways to invest, but I find the simplest and most elegant and easiest and laziest, which we all love, is uh, you know passive index fund investing, and I'm not going to bog you down with like it, it. The basic is that you buy an index fund, which basically um, it approximates the performance of the entire stock market as a whole. Instead of you going out and trying to find like who's going to be the next big winner, is it Tesla? Is it BP? Like who cares? You just buy the entire stock market, so you can do that in one fund. It's it's surprisingly and fantastically simple, and so you're just betting that the economy as a whole will continue to get better over the long term. And there are cycles like right now where it's not, but we know those come and go on average every 10 years or so. But over time, economies improve. And if they don't, like our whole world is broken and we have, we all have big problems, right? <laughs> yeah, we have like, bigger problems. Yeah. Yeah. And we right. can, you know, and, and, and some people get into sustainability. There, there are index funds, which only buy into sustainable con- companies. If you're interested in that, you know, if you don't want to buy, you know, a tiny piece of Walmart or something like that, if you're not into that, there are options for all kinds of flavors of people. But basically what you want to do is buy into the economy because you have to believe we all want the economy to succeed. And so, in doing so, your money in general, the, uh, these index funds usually uh, return about 7 to 10% on average. And um, that's way more than inflation. So over time, your money starts to exponentially increase. Your savings start to compound. So that grows 7%. The next year, that grows 7%. The next year, that grows 7% on average, right? So you know, any given year or month or day is all over the place. And you can't get lost in that noise. But so that's how... Instead of just socking away, you know, $10,000 a year and making it linear, 
you now make it exponential. Mm. And so that's why you can be done in, say, 10 years instead of if you put all that cash under your mattress, it could take 40 or 50 years. Sure. So you're relying on this compound growth. And if you need a real-world example of what compound growth looks like, go go pull a coronavirus curve. I mean, that's that's <laughs> what it is, you know? I mean, <laughs> like, that that's compound growth. Yeah, so that's the basics. And then at that point, you can withdraw those funds and you can sell shares to then fund your life. If you don't want to ever work again, you sell shares, small amounts at a time, and that is your income. Because your money will now produce its own income. It'll pay for your life. Hmm. That compounding effect. So that's the basics. That's the kind of bird's eye view of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to get into a little bit more of your own personal story. So it sounds like you and your wife were able to... You really went for this all in and you were able to expedite that process to such a degree that within... what? How long was it? Five or seven years? Yeah. um, You guys are set up. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'll be completely honest, we made good money. Like that obviously helps expedite things that helps us live a more quote unquote luxurious life. Although we, I would say we spend far less than the average, the average American family by far. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you only make $40,000, you're going to have, if you want to save 50% of your income, that's going to take maybe more sacrifice than if you make more. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't I don't beat around the bush. I mentioned that many times on the website. You know, we did have good income, which which helps expedite it. But teachers do this. And there there's there's I could link to you many stories of teachers who were making thirty, forty thousand dollars who became financially independent. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. It's very much I think it's that's another problem with the movement. It's it's often been categorized as like something for, you know, high income engineers and things like that. Sure, that helps, but I don't think that's required at all. So I think the first thing, I mean, it's really just an undying kind of persistent kind of message on like, what are we spending on that we really brings value to our life? You know, we talked about this on the phone the other day. I don't want to give people the the idea that they can only spend on the essentials and just live this austere life in a cold house, you know, with no heat on. And you just have to find like, what's important to you, you know? You know, if you're really into skiing, you can own like a girl I just interviewed, Lauren Abernathy. She's she has like nine pairs of skis between her and her boyfriend, but <laughs> but she's into skiing. But she doesn't go blow, blow money on other stuff that's not important. Hmm. It, you just have to decide what's important for you and quit spending money on all the other stuff. If you're not really that into eating out, then don't spend so much money eating out. But if you are, do it. You know. But I think once you start analyzing your spending habits in that way, you'll find lots of slop. I mean, I just. Everyone I've done this with has found lots of slop. It's it's just kind of inevitable. Well, let's get into that then. So, I mean, as far as some of the investment strategies and stuff like that that you just spoke to, I will go ahead and link those sorts of resources in the show notes for people so they can, you know, dig into more of the nuts and bolts of that. I don't want to necessarily bore them with that. But I am really interested in this idea of tracking spending. And I would love to hear, you mentioned that that was really eye-opening for you. It was interesting talking to you on the phone because that was one of my main questions was, you know, to what degree are you asking people to sacrifice some of the things that make life enjoyable? You know, some of the creature comfort, some of the things that, you know, I, I would argue along with you, like, you know, a lot of the time going out to eat's worth spending money on and doing things that, um, that bring us together with our community and things like that. So I guess I'm curious, what are some of the things that you discovered and your wife discovered as you were doing this exercise? What are some of the areas where you were spending a lot more than you expected that felt like easy things to to cut out that weren't adding value to your lives? 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is like the big ultimate thing for a lot of people. Um, I think in general, especially outside the climbing community, the biggest thing that's blowing blowing people up from doing this is spending too much. I mean, in general, I've, I find climbers to typically be a bit more of a frugal bunch compared to society at large. That's obviously me generalizing very broadly. Mm-hmm. But I don't see too many climbers, you know, rolling up in like Porsches and stuff like that. So, you know, it, <laughs> maybe it, fancy sprinter but, vans, but yeah, right. So that's enough. I think that's where it manifests in the climbing community is maybe things like that, and and that's fine. I, I don't have a problem. Again, it's all about finding a solution that works for you, and so it's dependent on your income level, which I think can be changed. It's dependent on savings level, which can be changed. So I guess. For us, speaking more specifically, when we started tracking our spending, and that's another thing, like, you know, with the times the way they are, I think investing is kind of a stretch right now for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It seems it seems insensitive to me to really be pounding the table on, you need to start investing. Like, people, 30 million people in this country have lost their jobs at this point. And it's not lost on me, right? I'm fully aware of it. So I think... The big thing I can recommend and I do recommend often for people who email me is to take this time to track your spending. I think it's it's so incredibly important. And so, you know, to give a list of resources for that um, in the personal finance community, the fan favorites are Mint, like the herb, Mint.com, I think. Mint.com. Um, yeah. Mint and, and they make an app as well, right? I, I believe so. Yeah, I think both of these and then personal capital. Also, um, I believe has an app and they're both free. They don't cost anything. Now, my wife isn't really a fan of like uh, stored passwords on the Internet. because you have to link all your bank accounts because it makes it really nice and seamless. And okay. so we do it totally old school manual with an Excel spreadsheet. And I actually started this habit when I was applying to grad school, like back in 2007, because I had to apply for like these FAFSA loans. And I was like, hell, I don't know how much my life costs. I don't know how much to apply for. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no clue because sure. I'm like, like so many people, you look at your checking account, you're like, do I have money? Good. Okay. I'll, I'll spend it. If I don't, then <laughs> shit, I need to make more money. Like right. that's how, that's how I was. That's how most people are. And so I was like, I don't actually know how much my life costs. So I spent, I just wrote down everything for like a month or two and it was really eye popping. And, and, and I used that to apply to grad school and I did that for years. And then when my wife and I combined finances, we started keeping our own combined and so we've just been in this habit now for, you know, well over a decade. And so it's just second nature to us. It's just like any other habit. You just have to kind of keep showing up. And we like the spreadsheet just because, I don't know, it kind of just forces us to get online and do it and, and be watching it. I think if it's all automated sometimes, you know, automation's great in some senses, but bad in another because you don't pay attention to what's going on. Mm. So my recommendation is just to start doing that and divide it into as many categories as you can, because if you have a giant miscellaneous that has a thousand dollars in it every month, then that's probably hiding some skeletons. Mm. I mean, like interesting. (laughs) Okay. And yeah, that was my problem because I had all this stuff that I would just throw into miscellaneous and I'm like, well, I don't know where to put it. And then all of a sudden (laughs) it's like my biggest category. And I'm like, how can I optimize on that when I don't even know, you know, like interesting. So in terms of value, so yeah, do that. I think you'll find some things, but you know, this has been talked a lot about in the personal finance world. This is certainly not my ideas, but you know, 80% of people spending is usually 20% of their line items. And the big three, unsurprisingly, are usually housing, uh, transportation. So your cars, any other sort of transportation and then food. Hmm. So I'd really put 
extra kind of close eyes on those three. You know, a lot of people in the personal finance world have been like, quit telling people not to drink lattes. And it's kind of true. Like, I personally make my coffee at home, but $3 a day, yeah, that sounds pricey to me for something I can make at home. But, you know, if you're also spending $200,000 more on a house than you probably needed, that's going to take a hell of a lot of lattes to make up that, you know? <laughs> okay. You know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. So, so I would really focus in on those big three, like, could I get a roommate, even if I'm a homeowner? Like, that's a huge hack. If you can get roommates as a homeowner and have someone else pay your mortgage, my God, I mean, you're off to the races. That's huge. Hmm. And, you know, some people aren't into, into roommates. That's fine. It may not be your solution. It's not ours. We own our home. We don't have roommates. But ours was food. That's where we were spending too much. We were going out to eat once or twice a week, you know. And, then, you know, depending on your alcoholism, I guarantee you won't get out of a decent restaurant without spending 40 bucks on two people, you know. Hmm. And uh, if you're slamming tons of margaritas, it's going to be even more. <laughs> so that was our thing. And then transportation, right? I mean, like if you've got, a, you know, a big loan on a vehicle, and, you know, you feel like you need a new car every five years. I mean, you probably don't. Right. I mean, and I, I can't, I, you know, I, I have to be careful here because I'll, I'll fully admit I just bought a new Tacoma. But, you know, that was a very calculated decision for us that we thought a long, a long time about. And it's our only car. So we have one car between us. And um, yeah, so we're very that's why I don't want to come across as like overly this frugal miser. Like we do spend money, but we're very intentional about it. I think intention is the word. Mm. So I don't care what you spend it on. I, I really can't, I can't come up with anything that I can say, you know, unquestionably no one should spend money on. I mean, I'm sure there's some, but I think it's just finding value. And I think once you start tracking it, you'll find those things. And that becomes especially true right now. If you're in an unfortunate situation where you've maybe lost income or you've been had income reduced, and it's going to be really important to take that step. Hmm. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure. I'm just kind of <laughs> rambling around. Yeah. No, this is great. I'm just deciding where to go next. So one thing I wanted to to ask about real quick, because it was interesting talking to you on the phone and hearing about um, your food. You have a real passion for food and you dreamed of being a chef for a while. And it was really interesting to hear, you know, as you guys decide, or as you realize that, oh, wow, I'm spending a lot more on food than I had thought. Even while it was um, important to you, you still decided that it was worth it to try to cut back on that. And then it was really interesting to hear how that actually improved your enjoyment, you know, th those really special mm -hmm. moments when you went yep. out to eat. Can you speak to that? Yeah. And that's the whole other thing. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was our experience. So I, I spent a better part of a decade in restaurants and I actually moved. I actually between undergrad and grad school, I moved out to Portland, Oregon to pursue it professionally, like kind of fine dining, like I was serious. And I was actually going to leave behind my degree in geology to do that. And uh, so food's very important to me. I, I love the, the craft of cooking. I love the art of cooking. And so, yeah, so we were always, especially in Houston, that was the thing to do there. Like Houston, if you don't know, I mean, it sucks in so many ways, but it was fantastic for food. And um, you could eat anything. Like if you wanted to get a Sri Lankan pancake, you could find it. You know, like I, I don't know, I just made that up. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably so, true. I'll yeah, you, you probably can. But I, so I was just like in love with that, like total like foodie, whatever. And um, and so I was still doing that, especially as we made a decent income. I was like, yeah, this is where my money's going, and we were always going out. So when I discovered this, like that was like me getting uncomfortable for a while, and I think that's where my wife kind of balked at it too. She's like, "Are you sure? Like it's so fun to go out." 
And I'll be honest, for about a month, when Friday night came and we just came home and just stared at each other and we're like, oh, let's make dinner, I guess. Like that did kind of suck. And it took a little discomfort there. And then I think after about a month, like we got into a groove and and I had not really been cooking that much because I'd done it for years professionally. And, you know, the week's busy. So you just slam together like some little crappy or whatever. And then we were going out on the weekends and all of a sudden I got like this newfound love of making my own food again and really actually enjoying the craft of me doing it instead of paying for the craft of somebody else doing it. Mm. So I started really like I was picking up new skills. And that's one thing I found when you're not willing to pay for something, you usually learn something. Like if you're not willing to, you know, call a plumber, you're going to learn a few things on YouTube about plumbing and you'll save some money doing it. And so I love that acquisition of skills and and a refinement of skills I'd had from, you know, professionally from working in the industry. So I, I think that's one thing with like the frugality thing that I think, again, I kind of have this fascination with facing a little bit of discomfort. Like, I don't know, you're in a van now, right? And you probably lived in a house or an apartment. I think you get used to that too. And you find joy and simplicity of a small space. You know, when I'm out camping or something and I'm in a tent, I don't have a van. I have a camper now. You know, you you start to find joy in like simple things that you used to think would be uncomfortable hmm. or not good enough. Mm-hmm. And I talked to uh, Chuck and Maggie Odette or one of my first interviews. And that's what they've told me many times in, in emails and on the on the interview I did with them is that people always think like, how can you live in this 13 foot little cramped space? And they're like, you just find out what you need just by doing. Hmm. And so I think a lot of our kind of tactful reduction in spending was a little bit of trial and error. Like some, I will admit like 2016, I've written about this. That was like what I call the year of austerity. <laughs> okay. Where we got really into it and probably went too far and took the joy out of life sometimes. But I thought it was incredibly meaningful to kind of find that bottom line. Cause we know we can go there. If times ever get lean, if we're in like another economic cycle, like we are today and we need to cut down, we know where we can go and still largely enjoy life. But we also it was good to test the waters a bit because now, you know, I spend, uh, spend freely on like travel and things, but I also think it's really important to understand there's usually ways you can spend less on the same thing. Like hmm. travel is a big one. There's a lot of ways to hack travel and to not pay sticker price. Yeah. You, you wow. wrote a really great blog post about your trip to Sicily. I'll point people to that. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so we've traveled a lot to Europe and, you know, big international destinations and pay virtually nothing for flights. And that's a whole nother, you know, maybe we can just link to that. Um, cause that's a whole nother discussion. There's a lot of ways to still have the same product or the same experience, but not paid. Like, you know, why pay $20 for something you can pay for five is another. So I spend a lot of time looking for ways to get the same experience without spending so much on it. One thing I'd like to get into with that, I mean, a lot of people listening to this, and this was my thought too, actually, when I reached out and we first talked on the phone, you know, a lot of them are probably thinking, hey, I don't know if I'll ever have a job that pays me enough that I can get to this place where I can retire early in 10 years. I don't know if I care enough or if I'm willing to give up all these creature comforts or, or compromise my enjoyment of life in the short term for that potential end result that doesn't feel realistic. It was really interesting, though, to hear you talk about how it's it's really a sliding scale. And I've, you know, you said something really interesting. You said that you think a, push, a position of financial strength is the most sustainable method for finding an enjoyable lifestyle. I'd love to hear what you have to say to people that aren't interested in maybe going the full way with this, but 
maybe what are your thoughts on, you know, what kind of a difference have you seen it make for people when they do some of these little things and simply free themselves up by having, you know, six months of savings where they're not stressed month to month to, to pay their bills, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think that I'm glad you mentioned that because honestly, like when I first started this blog, I was like, I'm going to tell everyone about financial independence. I think I would say it's single digit percentage of people will actually really truly pursue it and achieve it just because it feels too big or people don't have the income or the willingness to give up some things. Now, I mean, we could, we could talk about, you know, limiting beliefs on those sort of things and whether that's actually true or perceived, but I do think in, in this, there's another writer in this space. He's one of the legends too. His name's J.L. Collins and he's great. You should look him up. He has a great voice and uh, he's like a great storyteller. And he always talks about FU money and I, you could figure out what that stands for, <laughs> but it's the power really of financial strength. And I would really prefer that maybe than talking about retiring early or, you know, anything silly like that. I think if you can get people financially strong and that could be, six months of living expenses. That could be three months of living expenses. It could be five years of living expenses. Like that's incredibly empowering because how many times have we all done something for money for our jobs that we didn't want to do or that felt wrong or could have been downright illegal or unethical? I think far more people have been in those situations than we'd like to admit because we feel like we have to, because we feel like we're trapped. And mm. if we if we don't do what the boss says, then we could lose our jobs. And then what? Like we're, I mean, it's a scary, scary proposition. And when you have, you know, that FU money, like it is incredibly empowering. And long before I was able to walk away from my job or be in a position where I could, I started making my job a hell of a lot better because I felt it's like the office space effect. People talk about it all the time and it's an absolutely true. I've heard you talk about when, this. I, I love it. Yes. <laughs> it, and and I, I've heard so many people on other podcasts talk about this. It is absolutely magical that when you don't feel like you need that paycheck, all of a sudden you have this absolute incredible strength and you can assert yourself in ways that you would never think you could. Hmm. I just stopped going to meetings that I thought were stupid. <laughs> no one ever said anything. I started speaking my mind in meetings when I normally thought like this is a completely a voice of discontent. They're not going to like this. And people would turn their heads and be like, oh, say more. Uh, Interesting. You know, er wow. Every, everyone, especially in corporate America, toes the line. Like we all do it. And I did it too for years. Hmm. Like we just say what we think we should say. Or we behave how we think we should behave. Or we don't take vacation we know we have because no one else takes vacation. And when you don't care about whether the next paycheck comes or you care a lot less, it is powerful. So I think that is far more doable and is doable for almost anyone. I, I know not everyone comes from a position of privilege. There really are people who do struggle to even put food on the table. But I think, you know, for people in this audience, if you've got a cell phone, if you listen to podcasts, you know, you got a smartphone, you can probably find some version of this for yourself. And it is absolutely a sliding scale. It's not a light switch at all. It's not like you are financially independent or you're not, and you're like a loser or you're not. It's like you either are beholden to a paycheck forever, or you have some position of financial strength and you can stay in that job, but you can also assert yourself in ways or take time off. I mean, like we talked about on the phone, for every year you save 50% of your income, you buy a year of freedom. Hmm. And that's on linear terms. When that money starts compounding, you know, 
you might be buying yourself three years off. Hmm. So that's the way I like to think of it. And that may be a great solution for a, a climber if they just really, really, really want to go on a trip. And that's their position of financial strength. If you can save a year's worth of living expenses, then, you know, if you save 50% of your income for one year, you can go travel for one year and not have to cut your spending at all. So there's a lot of like knobs to turn. There's a whole lot of knobs to turn. So you briefly mentioned just a few minutes ago that when you and your wife were really first starting to explore this, at one point you kind of took it too far and you guys, you know, in hindsight realized like, okay, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel sustainable. We're giving up too much of what we love about life in order to, you know, this means to an ends thing. And, and we're not really loving the means right now. It's, it doesn't seem worth it. Yeah. How do you think about that now? How do you think about balancing that? And I guess generally, I don't know, it might, I guess it must feel like a big sacrifice for a lot of people who haven't considered this sort of approach if they haven't tried it before i'd be curious to hear what it feels like for you you know how much of a struggle was it was it easier than you thought it would be was it harder would you have gone back and and done any of it differently is that a good question (laughs) that question no yeah absolutely i'm yeah i'm glad you're asking okay I, i found it easier and faster than i expected And you were still able to climb during all that time? (laughs) Oh, yeah. No. There's one thing I won't give up, and it's climbing. Yeah, that's for sure. And the whole point of this is to be able to climb more. I mean, so the year of austerity, as I call it, 2016, right? I went to Seyuse. I was in France for two weeks, and it was fantastic. Uh And it's one of the best trips I've ever been on. My wife and I... Like, look back at it lovingly, like with starry eyes all the time. So I want to be clear, like, I wasn't living like a a monk on the hill. Yeah. You weren't working 80 hours a week and not sleeping. No. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I didn't try and push my career any further. We focused too much on probably saving a little bit too often, like not, not even enjoying like the occasional meal out, you know, maybe like obsessing too much over every single dollar. When again, it's usually 80, 20, right. Can you speak to that real quickly for people that aren't familiar with that principle? That's Pareto's principle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you got the, te- you got the actual name for it. So usually, and it's the same with training, you know, we're both into training too. It's like usually people obsess over all the wrong things and that usually 80, you can improve your situation. Uh, let's see, I'm some 20%, put 80% of, wait, no, now I'm messing it up. So basically. <laughs> I'll help you out. The, the way I understand yeah, maybe it, you is, it is by focusing your efforts on 20% of the the inputs, you really get 80% of the results from, exactly. from just that 20%. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And that's true with like, you know, cause we, we listen to training podcasts and all this stuff. And usually people are trying to do everything. They're trying to run and hangboard and campus and, and do all this stuff when, you know, maybe it's just your hips are too tight. Hmm. Right. You know, that's my story anyway, but oh, uh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the 80, 20 thing, like I was trying to obsess over every dollar we spent hmm. You know, everything we ever bought, like, could that be optimized when it's like, man, I probably would have spent maybe $2,000 more that year and it wouldn't have mattered at all. Okay. But instead, you just obsess. Whereas, you know, get, again, the big things, the 80-20 thing, get the big things right. Focus on what you can with your housing, your food, and your transportation and things like that. And a lot of that other stuff's just noise. Hmm. Like, make sure you're putting your effort into the things that will matter the most. And so we still spent a good chunk of money to travel that year. And that was 110% worth it. Like, I love that trip. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't think we sacrificed that much. And really, once you get these habits ingrained, 
especially with the compounding effects. Now, granted, like up until February of this year, I mean, the stock market has killed it for like the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. And so we were benefiting by that for sure. And that's been a common sentiment from people who have done this, that they thought it would take X many years and it ends up happening faster than expected. Because, you know, some of that might be market behavior. Some of that might be your own personal behavior that you get like really into this and you do a really great job saving more or a lot of people start picking up like what they call side hustles. I don't really like the term, but whatever, you know, like (laughs) supplemental sources of income. Uh Um, You know, they start maybe walking some dogs on the side or little silly things that may have seemed like beneath you, but all of a sudden it's money coming in. And uh, a lot of these, you know, sources of income aren't that hard to come by or, you know, teachers in the off season can pick up, you know, so there's little things like that that all of a sudden expedite the process. Hmm. I, I really don't think for us speaking specifically, I don't think we sacrifice to help a lot. I mean, I think by my standards, we live a luxurious life. Like we don't have nice things, but we, I mean, we judge, we judge luxury by experience and, uh, you know, we get to travel a lot. You know, I'd love to go on more climbing trips. That's what I'm hoping to do, but I'm married to a woman who doesn't climb. So there's challenges there. But, um, I think by and large, like, I climb outside, you know, even when I was working, I climbed outside twice a week. I'd climb in the gym twice a week. I had everything I needed, so I'm happy. Like, I don't feel like it was a sacrifice at all. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. And I think one thing I'd want to point out that I that I really appreciate about your approach, too, is just a reminder to people that it's not about ending up on a beach somewhere at age 35, never having to work again. You know, the the amazing thing about having a little bit of financial freedom enough to not have to stress about a paycheck is that you get to ask yourself what it is that you really want to do. Exactly. And in your case, it's it's amazing to see your blog and to see that, you know, you're not trying to make money off this thing. You just want to help people. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, um, you know, and that's another, you remind me of an important point. You know, I get emails from people who are trying to consider like they've gotten really into climbing and they want to pursue something that's, you know, maybe they've got a degree in like engineering or whatever, but they just want to climb a bunch and want to, you know, even some of these services like notoriously uh, low paying jobs, like even guiding or things like that. Like people are hesitant to get into it because they hear it doesn't pay well. And I'm like, well, hell, you know, if you've got some living expenses saved up, then give it a go. I got no problem with it. Like just put yourself where you've got a backup plan. Hmm. Like that's my kind of thing. And I think these same methods can be used to just start something you're more passionate about that won't lead to financial ruin. And I'm not saying guiding or any of these things will lead to financial ruin, but they can. I mean, some of these, some of these jobs just pay notoriously terribly, or they have, you know, ephemeral client bases that kind of come and go. I mean, we could, we could name hundreds of jobs that are a little bit more insecure on the income side, but if you come into it with some sort of base that even may just be a year or two's living expenses, I mean, that's really powerful too. Because then you feel like you've got time to tinker. You've got Mm. time to explore. You've got time to optimize. Whereas you don't need money from day one. Like I think that leads to a lot of like kind of spammy stuff where people are desperately trying to sell, sell, sell because, man, they got to get money. Like, or this thing's going to fail. Yeah, take whatever they can get. Yep. So if you've got got some room to breathe, you can take more chances, right? Okay. I I really want to make sure that people come away from this conversation with something tangible, you know, like, okay, he's mentioned tracking spending, but you know, and he's mentioned investing, but like, what is it that I should actually go do? Is this a good time to transition to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, yeah, I think number one for everyone, I always tell everyone to do it is tracking your spending. Like we already talked a bit about that. 
you can get an app or you can do it on your own with a spreadsheet. I can help you with that. Uh, Are you willing? I, I'm, I think I asked you this on the phone and I le- would love to check in on it. Are you willing to share a spreadsheet template that we could share with yeah. people? That'd be great. I, I think I've either got one or I could put one together. Perfect. I wrote a post on this and I had to make a, like a blank kind of, I've got an image on the post of like a blank template for our life. Okay. And uh, you, you could custom suit it. Obviously, I can't make one for everyone that's, you know, you would have to tweak it, but it's real simple. I mean, it's just a list of categories and then you know, we do it month by month and uh, yeah, I could put something together. No problem. Awesome. That'd be awesome. And so that's what I recommend people start with just because you got to have an understanding of money in and money out. A lot of people also don't know what their take home pay is. Like you, hmm. I didn't either. I mean, you might know your salary, but like, what do you actually pull in? Like what is available to spend? What's what, what's taken out in taxes, that sort of thing. Hmm. So all that should be tracked. That's number one. And then especially now with the way things are, I mean, I don't want to sound alarming, but um, you know, the economy is in, sh- in bad shape and a lot of income sources, I think, if they're not threatened yet, potentially can be. So I would I would really start, you know, forget about investing. Just just give yourself three to six months of living expenses. So step one is find out how much your life costs and find out how much a month of your life costs and multiply that by three to six. And I'd get that into a high yield savings account. You can look online for these a lot. There's Ally Bank. Uh, CIT Bank, I believe is what they're called. Those are um, those are going to do a lot better than your traditional savings account. And you can just park that money there. You know, obviously you need to keep some in a checking account because you got to pay bills and things. So keep at least a month's worth of living expenses there. How does that work? Is and that then, something you can pull out at any time or is it stuck? Yep, yep. Okay. Yeah, usually at most they might have like a business day or something delay on moving funds. Okay. But usually, usually it's uh, a lot of these... I mean, they may, those accounts may even just do it automatically. So it's, it's just like a traditional savings account, but you get better interest rates. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I would do that. And then, you know, that, that I think is just kind of for anyone. There are, there are people who believe and who don't believe in, in emergency funds. They just think you should invest the money. You know, I don't think that advice applies for most people. It doesn't apply for me. We don't do that. We actually have a lot more in cash just as a savings account. We have well over a year living expenses because that's just our comfort level. Okay. That's just risk and comfort and... Yeah, because basically if we... My wife's still working, but if, if she wasn't and we wanted to share sell shares, sell shares of stock to live off of, the risk there is if you sell in a down market, you're having to sell more shares to fund your life. Mm-hmm. And so that can be risky and that could cause you to run out of money sooner. So having that cash buffer kind of allows you to not have to do that during bad times. Okay. If you need it. Yeah. Okay. So it's just, that's a whole nother strategy and we could go off in the left field on that stuff. Gotcha. um, Okay. So we, we keep more, but some people keep less. I would say people should aim for three months at a minimum, three to six months. Okay. Happy number. And then, you know, and for those of you who are fortunate to have a good job and have, and you get into this stuff and you're saving more, then I would start looking, start looking to invest that money and get it work for you. And we don't have to talk about that. We can uh, link to those kind of sources. And I can, and I recommend you check other places too. Don't just listen to me. But I think you'll find that there's a lot of overlap and you'll find it's amazingly, beautifully simple. Hmm. It does not need to be complex. Um, I'm not pouring through re- investor reports and, and reading all the financial news. Blah, no, you don't have to. So, but that's for people who have, or, you know, have got some margin, but I just encourage everyone to find margin where you can. Those are kind of the basic first steps. So step one, find out how much your life costs. Step two, calculate that number, 
multiply it by three, put away that much in uh, the type of savings account that you mentioned. What was the what was that type of savings account? High yield. High yield savings so account. Just, they just have better interest rates. Okay. And then if you can, the investment strategies and potentially investing a bunch of money into a, some sort of an index fund, something really simple where you're not paying someone else to manage your money. And I will, yeah. I will be sure to point people to some resources that have been helpful to me in that regard as well. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's another thing. I'll uh, just interrupt you real quick. Sure. We don't have a financial advisor. We don't. I don't think it's necessary. It's absolutely not necessary. Like this is all DIY stuff and um you know, and the investing thing, that's a lifestyle play. Like if you guys are psyched on this and you like love this idea of uh, financial independence or even partial financial independence or whatever, that's the next step. I'm not saying I didn't come on here to tell everyone they need to do that to have the ultimate life. Mm -hmm. But I get far more emails from people who are just like, man, my financial life is a mess. Where do I start? You know, hmm. that's far more what I'm interested in is just getting people on a good footing. And then, you know, if you get good habits, things follow suit. One thing I'd love to ask, I mean, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is is in our conversation on the phone, I was like, okay, this guy is his own success story, you know? Like, I, I really am, uh, <laughs> I was really impressed by that, you know? You're not just some armchair guy throwing out theories, like you've actually done it for yourself and made it happen. I'd be curious, though, speaking to these couple steps that you just mentioned, these tangible things that people can do. Have you received feedback from people or, or do you have any other testimonials? And what are people experiencing if they follow these steps and get to a point where suddenly they have three months safety net for the first time in their lives? Um, have you heard any feedback like that from people? And what is that kind of doing for people? Uh, you know, a lot of these conversations, like many email conversations, you know, I don't always get the end story. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll give some feedback and then you never hear from people. So sometimes I don't know how well it goes for people. I just had one the other day. He was really engaging and he told me that, you know, he was one of these guys who was like, you know, I'm kind of overloaded. This is all great. I love all this stuff. I just don't know where to start. And that's another thing. Like I, I think a lot of this, like if you ever, if you're into like the habit research or mindset research, I mean, a lot of this is just rooted in that kind of stuff. And there's some really great really digestible kind of materials like James Clear's book, Atomic Habits and things like that. A lot of this is just good habits. So what I, I told him, like, cause he said, he's just kind of overwhelmed. Like he doesn't really know. And he's kind of like all over the place. And so I recommended to him, what I do is I schedule my day even now, especially now because I'm not working. I think it's incredibly important, especially because people are dealing with boredom and things like that. Like I start every day with a schedule for every hour of my kind of productive window of my day. And I don't schedule, you know, beyond like 4 p.m. because that's just kind of, you know, fun time. But otherwise, like, and, you know, I put like annoying things that you don't want to do. And for you, that may be starting uh, a spreadsheet to track your spending. <laughs> like it may sound terrible. Mm -hmm. So put it on the clock for nine o'clock, man. And like, it's far more likely to get done hmm. if it's on your schedule. And, and the more you don't want to do it, the more you should probably schedule it. And then... And he told me he had started tracking his spending, but it, you know, he'd kind of kept it in notebook, I believe, and it kind of just lost track on that. And it's just one of those things. It's like, I recommend, yeah, making something formal, make it a nice spreadsheet, make it something you want to show up and work on, uh, color code it, make it look pretty. You know, like my wife, like, <laughs> she's made it, she made it look beautiful. Mine look like crap. But when she, when she, yeah, but when she took it over, like she put little dollar signs on everything and like had a nice grayscale, like. It's a nice looking document, you know, I get excited to open it now. I love it. Yeah, little things like that that just make it easier to show up on it. 
just make it easy. That, that's kind of like what I came away from reading like James Clear's book. It's like, I think he has like four things. He's like, you know, make it, you know, make it easy, make it, I don't remember what his four things were, but I do remember make it easy. And so if you put <laughs> barriers in the way, um, you won't do it. Sure. So yeah. try, try and take down all those barriers. You know, and it, it is so interesting. There is so much science supporting the power of just tracking things. Yep. Um, whether it be yeah. finances, whether it be your weight for weight loss, whether yeah. it be your training. I mean, it's miraculous things happen. It's almost magic. It seems that if you just write it down, measure it and write it down every day, things um, tend to trend in the right direction without you really consciously doing anything. And we were talking on the phone. I remembered a great story. I've got a buddy in Bend, Oregon, uh, my friend Swiss Williamson, and I was hanging out with him a few months ago. And he was telling me that at one point in the last year, he was uh, he'd become interested in tracking his own spending and just kind of being a little bit more financially frugal to free himself up for a potential road trip. And mm -hmm. he bought a giant piece of poster paper and he put it on his wall in his flat. And all he did was just write down the amount of money he spent, I think, each week. And that's all he did. He didn't have a yep. goal. <laughs> he didn't have, you know, an amount that was too much or not enough or, or whatever. He just wrote down the amount. And it just seemed like almost magically that number just crept down in the right direction on its own. Exactly. <laughs> just, it's a system. He just yep. put it on the wall where he could see it. And it just created, you know, it just led to all these subtle little subconscious decisions and habits, to, you know, to your point, new habits that uh, improved his frugality. I found that super interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's so true. And, you know, and I've heard you guys like, uh, yeah, like Steve Bechtel, some of these guys have really great, like they have really great, like insightful quotes. And I, James Clear had another one. I think it's like his tagline for the book, like, uh, and, and I have no relationship with James Clear. I keep mentioning him. I'd love to have him. So if you're listening, um, but uh, <laughs> he, he's like, you don't, what is it? Like you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems or something like that. Mm. And like I, that resonates so much with me because I mean, we all have goal. Like we all, every basketball team at the beginning of the season wants to win the championship, but only one does. And so um, like goals are only go so far. But it's more like the systems you put in place to achieve them are really what matter in the end. Hmm. So I think it's just these little things that keep you kind of showing up and the goal will happen kind of naturally. Let's get into that. I'd love to hear if um, are there any other systems that you've put in place for yourself that have helped you with this sort of stuff? You just mentioned planning your day and putting in, you know, that 9 a.m. track my spending sort of thing. Is there anything else yeah. that comes to mind that's been especially impactful for you? Yeah, I think, yeah, scheduling my day is really important for me. I know that's not going to fit for everybody, but like that's huge for me. You know, on the financial front, like once a month, we also track our, our net worth. So that's, you know, once you're into tracking your spending, you also want to know, like you have assets, like those are your accounts. Uh, those may be investment accounts, uh, checking accounts, savings account, any property, whatever. And you have liabilities, which are all your debts. So that could be student loans, consumer debt, mortgage. And so we track that once a month. We found it very intoxicating, like really great to see that every month. And we, we do it on the 15th of every month and we get so excited, like it's savings day. And we would manually do that. And so that was kind of like a little fun thing. And it begins, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because you start to see that improvement. And it's just like why, it's why I think people love hangboarding so much. Cause hmm. it's like the one thing you can put a number to, you're like, ah, I can hang more weight off my fingers mm -hmm. than I did a month ago, even though you've been 
not be a better climber, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's been my experience. But uh, um, but it's so it's so intoxicating, right. it's so intoxicating. So that's that's a big one. Tracking spending, tracking net worth. Once you get into that, once you know, it's really good exercise to kind of just check all your accounts. Like a lot of times you like, have you looked at your 401k lately? If you have one, like I hadn't until I got into this habit, hmm. um, I never checked that stuff. And so if you're just seeing the progress, yeah. So just seeing that progress, it just leads to more and you know, more other good habits. I mean, hmm. honestly on the money side, that's really about it. I honest, I don't really do. That's why I keep, that's why I love this stuff. Like I don't, think about finances other than now I do because I write about it all the time. But in terms of actually what I do for my life, mm-hmm. it's really, it's about a once a month, once a month exercise. It's, we track our spending about, well, we do that maybe twice a month. We're kind of like loose on that. We don't exactly have that scheduled. And then on the 15th, they're about of every month we check our net worth and that's it. That's all we do. Hmm. Everything else is automated. There's systems in place with some of these accounts where you can just automate deposits. We don't do anything. So that's, that's kind of the beauty. Like, I, I don't think you have to be that motivated. It, it's, that's why I keep joking that climbing is way harder. Like <laughs> you have to do things multiple times a week. You have to think about every meal you eat. And I think that's way more exhausting. It's also you know? really hard to, to know it's working sometimes. Exactly. Right. To be optimized as an athlete is like an everyday hour by hour kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To be optimized on your finances is it's a couple of days a month. Hmm. Um, now, that's not true. I guess it, if you really struggle with spending, it, it is going to be more conscious. Like you're going to have to, like if you maybe every morning you got to think like, do I want to buy coffee or whatever? You know, that's a bad example. But um, so, I, yeah, I don't want to be, I, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I am kind of naturally frugal. But if you're not someone who is that, you will have to put more effort into it. I shouldn't sound too dismissive of that. But. Sure. Well, I would actually like to return to the spending portion as well, just sure. as far as getting into more stuff that's tangible for people to take away from yep. this. So you spoke to the big three, you know, the big three areas where we spend kind of getting back to the 80-20 thing. It's probably 80% of our expenses come from these three things. So that was uh, your home and mm-hmm. your food and your transportation. You yep. mentioned potentially getting a roommate if you're a homeowner to help someone to help pay your mortgage. And you also mentioned, you know, your own personal story, you and your wife really thinking about, okay, how often do we really need to go out to eat versus maybe it'd be fun to, to get back into cooking. Are there any more, maybe let's go through each of those three. Are there any other things that you guys have done or that you've advised people to do, or that you've heard from people that have reached out to you? Any other things that, that have helped in each of those three areas? Um, you know, if I do it again, I would definitely look at housing differently. Okay. Um, we bought, we bought our house in 2013 and you know, it's an urban area is expensive. So, I mean, we, we paid a good bit for it. Our mortgage is certainly above average for like the nation, but you know, front range is expensive. Everybody knows that. So if I did it again, I would have looked long and hard, either having roommates or getting some sort of duplex and renting out the other hmm. half. That is huge. Cause if you can... And when I say big three, like housing, transportation, food, transportation and food are a very distant second and third. Housing, oh, wow. us- Yeah. Housing is usually number one by a long shot. Okay. Um, I, you know, I've interviewed a number of people now, not because they're pursuing financial independence or anything, just because I think they have interesting lives and might have something to offer. And I've been surprised to find that more times than not, I think Mike Doyle, I think 
Hazel Finlay, several people who are now recent homeowners. I don't think Mike's recent, but anyway, they all have roommates. And I'm like, that's fantastic. They don't hmm. even know how, I don't even know if they, I'm sure they did it for financial reasons or maybe they just like living with their buddies. But that is, <laughs> that is I mean, that's like a common thing mentioned in the personal finance world. It's like a, I think people don't even know how good of a thing they're doing. Hmm. Um, I really recommend that to people, especially if you're young and you're used to living with your buddies anyway. I mean, you can often buy a home without putting a whole lot of money down. And um, if you can get other people living there paying the mortgage for you and that's a secure source of income and they're not going to bail on you and you're, you know, they're your friends and you're going to let it slide or something, that is extremely powerful. And then you can eat out all you want. <laughs> like, if you don't have if you don't have housing costs i can't impress upon you how our so we just paid off our mortgage and that's 30 congratulations of our, th- thank you it's 30 percent of our spending gone wow um, it's huge wow 30 percent. and that's not uncommon that's 30 percent of our actually a lot of people will tell you that you can spend 30 percent of your income on your home that's 30% of our spending. It would have been far less of our income. But if people are spending 30% of their income, then it might be 50% of your spending. So, Can you help me understand the differentiation there? Yeah. So, well, because we don't spend, we don't, you know, we had quite a high savings. You don't spend 100% of your income. Yeah. But a lot, of people, a lot of people do. Yeah. The difference is savings. Yes. So our, our spending, it was 30% of our spending. Okay. But a lot, if you just Google, like, how much should I spend in housing? Like a lot of just normal sources, you know, not optimized sources, but people will tell you, oh, spend 30% of your income. Got it. And for a lot of people, they're spending more. Like if your income is low, but you live in an urban area, if you only make like maybe 40 grand or 30 grand or something like that, but you live in like uh, Boulder, I mm-hmm. mean, you're probably spending a lot more than 30% on housing unless you live with a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It's not inconsequential at all. And so I think that's a huge one. If you can lower your housing expenses, now whether that, that might be moving to a different part of town that's not as desirable, or maybe you got to ride your bike further or whatever, or if you already own a home and can uh, rent it out or have roommates in a pre-COVID world, I'd tell you to, you know, we were already considering maybe doing a little bit of Airbnb in our own current house, especially when we travel. Mm-hmm. Little things like that can make a huge difference. And then you don't have to worry about lattes. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Any recommendations for renters? For renters, yeah. Um, Buy a house? <laughs> no, no, I actually don't, Rick. So there's a big misconception that like a house is like a great investment. The house you live in is usually not a great investment. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I did a post on this too. Where I broke it down. I actually use all our real numbers. If you're, it's the only place I've actually used real numbers. I usually don't say any of our numbers on our website, but I laid it all out for that one just to do the, the math for everyone. And we have made money on the house, but it's not nearly as much as you'd think, especially on the front range. Everyone, you know, with the housing market shooting up over the last 10 years or five years, it's not as good as you would think because people forget how much money you put into a house too. Hmm. Renovations. Uh, and if you, you know, a mortgage is debt and it has interest and you're paying a lot of interest for a long time. You don't even touch the principal. You're just paying straight up interest hmm. for like the, for the first many years of a mortgage, unless you're paying a lot of extra. So it's not usually that great of a deal. Now, that being said, I'm a huge fan of being a homeowner. I love it for many intangible reasons. But if you're a renter, you might have a lot more opportunity. Like there's opportunity costs with owning a home. Like you have to put down a big fat down payment. Well, mm-hmm. if I'd invested that, I'd probably have more money now. Oh, if right. Rented, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I'd have just invested that money and I'd kind of break that all down in that post, 
there is an opportunity cost because you have to have a down payment. And there's a lot of nuances there that we won't go into. I mean, there's a whole can of worms on is home ownership good or bad. But um, for renters, again, you know, roommates, obviously, like, you know, a one bedroom in Boulder is going to go for a hell of a lot more than if you got a three bedroom house with three people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of geographic differences in uh, the price of rent and homes. Like if you want to be in the trendiest, greatest part of town, you pay for that. And sometimes just moving like a mile away could drop your rent 30%, 50% maybe. I'm not telling people to go live in the ghetto just to save money. You have to find that balance. But a lot of times people will pay uh, a premium to be in like trendy areas. There's no doubt about it. And and I, in full disclosure, I'd say we're maybe a little bit guilty of that. I mean, I think we live in a good neighborhood and personally, I think we, uh, if I did it again, I'd probably move like a mile west and we would have probably paid a lot less hmm. um, and with the same quality of life. So you kind of have to ask yourself those questions. And, and we bought this house before we were all into this financial stuff. And so, man, I'd do it differently. That's for Interesting. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So it's just one more knob to twist or lever to pull. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing wrong with renting at all. I don't want to give the impression there's anything wrong with renting. We're actually maybe considering doing it again if we sell this house. Like maybe we'd rent huh. for a little while or um, – Okay. Yeah. It, you know, there, there's pros and cons of both. Like we had a meltdown of like a a water flooding event in our basement last summer. And believe me, man, that will make you just like curse the day you ever bought a home. Um, <laughs> but But most of the time I love it. So, you know, there's pros and cons. So you were just speaking about some of the guests that you've had on your blog. You know, if people haven't read it, you do a number mm-hmm. of interviews with uh, with a lot of names that people would recognize. And of course, this is how you and I connected, because you had done an interview with uh, with Mike Doyle. And it was really fun as we were prepping for this. I was looking through your list and I was like, oh, wow, you know, he's had he's had Jonathan and Tara and Mike on the on the blog. <laughs> yeah. and they've been on the podcast. And then, you know, you've also interviewed Hazel Finley and Dave McLeod, Steve Bechtel, Paige Klassen. I was like, oh, those are all people I want to have on the podcast, too. So just, it was kind of. It was kind of fun to go down that rabbit hole and read some of those. But I'd love to ask, how has that experience been for you? Have there been any key insights from these people or, or takeaways that have been that have stood out to you from these interviews? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, well, first of all, I'm jealous that you actually got to sit down with some of these people and talk <laughs> for like, I, you know, I just said to like email, so it's not nearly as fun. But uh, no, I am like eternally grateful. I honestly never expected to talk to any of these people. I'm, I'm nobody in the climbing community. I'm not connected in any way, really meaningfully at all. But these people, that's like the beauty of our sport is that you get to play on the same playing fields and meet these people. And they're so approachable. Oh, it's the best. Fantastic people. All of them, really. Like, you know, could you imagine me like writing an email to LeBron James and getting a response? Like, no <laughs> right, way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and just about everyone I've emailed is not only email me back, but we're like more than excited to do it. So, no, uh, some big lessons, you know, in part, I'm probably biased. I reach out to people I really want to talk to because I have personal reasons because I think they'll, I don't know, because we probably have things in common. Sure. I'm probably not willing to talk to just anyone because I don't think everyone really fits, especially with my website. Um, I first thought I was only going to talk to people who were doing something like either lifestyle or financial. Like I, my first obvious target, cause I'd followed them for a while was Chuck and Maggie Odette, who I already mentioned. And I kind of was just fascinated with them. Cause I was like, Oh man, they're, they're doing this just like I would. Like I always was fascinated with the dirt bag life, but they kind of waited till they were more or less retired to do it. 
And so I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And so I couldn't wait to have an excuse to email them. Uh, <laughs> cool. And then I just kind of was like opening this up more. You know, I talked to Mark Anderson, who is a friend. He's maybe the only person I know that climbs really hard that I actually know. And he he was really psyched on this because I mentioned this to him early on, when this project. And it turns out I always had a feeling he was doing the same thing, and he was. And we just never really talked about it because money's taboo and no one talks about money. Hmm. And so he was a great in- interview subject for obvious reasons because he was doing the exact same thing with a similar with similar goals. But other, otherwise, none of these people are really like, I don't reach out to them because they're pursuing financial independence. I just think I have this obsession with like finding a sustainable lifestyle. And I'm like, okay, how are you doing it? Like Jonathan Secrets, like you get to climb the climb all over the world. You're a 515 climber. Like you get paid to do this. How How is that possible? Like what is it about you that enabled this? And for him, obviously, it's being a, not only a really great climber, but having a personality that's very approachable that that guy just has infectious psych and we all know it and we Hmm. love hearing about him and like your podcast with him was incredibly great because I mean, what a great guy, you know? And so, and then, but one thing stands out to me with Dave McLeod, like that guy, I mean, if you, if you've never heard of Dave McLeod, I know you, I'm sure have, but for anyone out there listening, like, you know, go block a half day away and uh, (laughs) prepare to be blown away. Like that guy is so incredibly amazing. And he gave me one, quote, I don't even know if it's his, but he just says, you know, to be exceptional, you have to do what others aren't willing to do, something Mm. along those lines. And I I think that's so incredibly insightful and so incredibly true. I don't think a lot of these people have any real superpowers. You know, maybe there's some genetic gifts there for climbers and things like that. But a lot of people who really stand out and we all admire do things that most of us aren't willing to do. And I can't think of anyone on the list of people I've admired who that's not true for. Hmm. Um, you know, like Jonathan's an incredible, incredibly hard worker, as best I can tell. He works really tirelessly to be a great climber. Dave McLeod, Dave McLeod, that guy's a training genius. He uh, reads literature. He studies everything he can about climbing and about exercise science. He's got a, he's got a great video log that he does. Oh yeah, Every, too, everyone should go check those out. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to those. Those are fantastic. You know, and guys like Chris Hampton, who I interviewed, like that guy works tirelessly on his company, Power Company. Mm-hmm. You know, these these people are not slackers. And like he probably started that so he could be like more into climbing. But I mean, he probably works his ass off now. Yeah, and sure. he's into it. And, <laughs> right. And, and I love this idea of really, really hard work and effort. And I'm kind of fascinated with that. And it's something I try and apply to myself every day. You know, you've got to be willing to do what others are not. And it's amazing where that'll take you. And it can take you in climbing, it can take you in finances or relationships. And so that's kind of what I've come away with is like all these people have done something probably that others were not willing to do, even if they don't know it. And I kind of try and flesh that out of them because I can usually kind of see it as an outsider looking in. And I kind of try and dig that out of them. Like, what's your exceptional thing? Like, where did you put in the work? And a lot of times they're kind of humble, you know, and they'll be like, oh, I don't know. I just climbed a lot and loved it. But I'm like, no, come on. A lot of people climb a lot and love it. But you're right. something else, you know? Right. Like, I know you're something else for a reason. And um, so that's probably what I've come away with is that all these people are incredibly passionate about what they do. And um, they're willing to really work for it because lots of people are passionate about climbing and uh, about building businesses. But I, I think that next level of effort really goes a long way. Mm. 
I love that quote from Dave. You know, I think yeah. so many people are uh, either afraid or just unwilling to not be normal or, or they think it's bad to not be normal. But it's like, well, hey, if you want, you know, abnormal results, it might not make sense to be normal in every way. Yeah. And Mark Anderson, he's talked about this, right? I mean, because a lot of the golden era of training is due to their book, I would argue, about and the, like the hangboarding craze. And he talks about it, and we've talked about it in person. Like, he used to hangboard at the gym, and people would look at him like he had three heads, like, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago. And now, who isn't hangboarding, right? I mean, right. And, and now it's a thing that everyone does. But it used to be like a thing only weirdos did. And so, yeah, I love that concept of being the oddball out, you know? Something you just said triggered something. I'd, I'd love to transition with that. So you were just speaking to effort and how significant an insight or, or how enlightening an insight that has been that, you know, it, it seems to come back to effort over and over. And I found a quote from you. I was reading one of your articles and the quote is, if there is any fountain of youth, any magic elixir, it's effort. That really caught my attention. That was from an article called The Fallacy of Happiness and Meaningful Work. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty new post. That's a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, it gets back to this like grand vision of mine. I'm like of trying to pursue like the best life. Because I think if I would have just quit my job, you know, a year and a half in, I'm not sure I would have found happiness that I thought I would find. And I, I kind of give a story, I think I give a story in that article talking about, you know, like you see all these pictures of paradise on online and beautiful beaches and then you get there and it's maybe not so great. And it's like really hot and sweaty and there's people everywhere. And it's like, well, you there's know, mosquitoes. like, that, yeah, that, that's too easy. Like <laughs> that, like, of course it's not so great. Like, but I think probably my, my greatest satisfactions in life have come from pushing through something. And just like we were talking about, you know, with these other great people who you've interviewed, who I've interviewed, I think all these people have faced something that they had to push through. And I find that um, a lot of times people want to, to run from something more times than they honestly want to run to the next thing. They're just kind mm. of bummed where they are. And maybe it's a job. Cause I'll, you know, I'll tell you my first two years of my job, I hated it, but it got a lot better. But, you know, I had to put effort into it and relationships are that way. You know, we'll meet someone and we'll be like, ah, I don't know. They're just not for me. I'm like, well, hell, I mean, who's perfect, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like I've been married for, uh, oh, it's embarrassing. I can't come up with a number, 2012, eight years, <laughs> almost exactly. And like, that's, that takes effort, you know, like yeah. marriages are not easy day in and day out. And so I'm just kind of fascinated with this, you know, and I read a lot about this stuff. And so that's why I get into it. But I think a lot of times in a lot of emails I get, like people want to pursue some sort of, like, they just don't want to work in a corporate life or they don't want to do this, but they just want to, like they think if you just run to that greener grass, everything will be fine. But I think what I've I've come to in a lot of the research suggests is that, you know, building a craft and really working at it and spending years on building that craft is what really makes people happy, especially when it comes to job satisfaction. And I talk about a great book in there. It's by Cal Newport called Be So Good or So Good They Can't Ignore You. And mm, it's actually a great a, book. Yeah, it's a Steve Martin quote. And that was his major advice. And it's astonishingly simple. But if you're so good at something, then you can't be ignored. But to get so good, you have to put in years honing a craft. Hmm. And um, it's just my caution to people to, 
to not get dissolution, I think, whether that's in climbing or training or in a job or um, in school, um, we all face tough times. I think there's a lot to learn by the grit and the adversity, you know, those sort of tools you get out of pushing through difficult things. In hindsight now, I'm glad I didn't leave my job two years in, and now I have this kind of gift of financial independence. But I had to grind through uh, multiple times where I wanted to walk out. Hmm. Um, I mean, there were months on on end where I should have just walked out. And maybe I should have. Maybe I should have. But in the end, I made it a really good place for myself. And I'm you know, proud of that. And I, I think if we can all find like something that we're really into and pursue it as a craft and um, not be in too much of a hurry hmm. and just, just have patience with things. And, you know, training is one of those things, you know, we all want to like be strong and send our project, but the best climbers are the ones that have been doing it a long time <laughs> and they're craftsmen, hmm. um, you know? And so that's what I've learned. And that probably gets back to a lot of these interviews and this, you know, what I've learned from these people is, man, they're all craftsmen, whether they know it or not, whether that's in business or in climbing. And I, I just love that idea. I'd love to ask with that. Is this blog clipping chains? Is this your craft? that you're most excited about? Yeah, you know, I guess I'll admit that. I've tried to beat around the bush and pretend I don't care that much, but I really do, actually. Hmm. I tried to pretend it was just a hobby, but now that I'm not working, I, I really do think this is my thing. I'm trying to, like, the craft is certainly writing. I think I do want to do something with writing one day that may be beyond just this website. So I try and write every day. And that's like a seven-day-a-week habit for me. And I do get a whole hell of a lot out of this, especially... When I get kind of feedback, especially from climbers, because that's like I've, I've had articles kind of shared around the personal finance world. And that's great. But sometimes I feel like that's an echo chamber because I'm already talking to people who get that side of things. Hmm. When I hear from another climber, like even if it's like one view out of a thousand, like if, if that meant something for them, like that really, really gets me excited because I'm like, all right, this is my people, you know. <laughs> um, and so. I, I do think that is my craft now. I think like I'm getting a lot out of this. I'm glad I don't have to make it a business because I don't want to, and it would be a terrible business <laughs> that I wouldn't make any money with it. But um, um, I'm glad I can enjoy it for what it is and just like a project. And yeah, some days are better than others, right? Like some days I'm really frustrated. Like, oh, maybe a, maybe a post I thought people would really like is not getting shared around. Like, boo-hoo. Like, I still learned something. I still am a better writer than I was a month ago hmm. or a year ago, probably. Maybe maybe a month's not a long enough time frame to assess it. But, oh, yeah, I go back and look at some of my older articles, and I should just delete them. But <laughs> I'll keep them for, like, historical, uh, <laughs> you know, posterity. But, yeah, I mean, it, and you hear that a lot from people who are writers or, uh, you know, like you had Tara Kersner on, like filmmakers. I mean, she hated, she said, don't post my old, my old videos because I don't like them. <laughs> right. You know, it's so true. Like, because you just get better. You get yeah. better and you, you hone a craft. Well, Chad, I know you don't necessarily, <laughs> I mean, you, you spoke to your own climbing in kind of a funny self-deprecating way. And I totally hear what you're saying, you know, it's, <laughs> but, but I'd love to hear about your climbing. This is a climbing podcast and, yeah. uh, and you love I it. I knew you were going to eventually, yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to it. So yeah, I'd love to hear, uh, I mean, you guys did this recent trip to, to Sicily yep. and we were talking on the phone. It sounds like your kind of main thing that you're excited about is sport climbing, but, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear, tell me a little bit about your own climbing. Yeah, uh, I'm your typical, like, performance-oriented, obsessed climber <laughs> yeah. uh, who's 
not as good as he should be. But. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, no, uh, I've been climbing like 10 years. Um, yeah, primarily a sport climber. I'd say I'm a part-time boulder, a part-time trad climber. I've uh, Those have increased with varying frequencies over the years, you know. But sport climbing is probably always my, you know, my main squeeze. Uh-huh. I, I want to boulder more, honestly. I want to... The whole thing was that we were going to maybe do some traveling. And my wife's not much of a climber, so I was going to embrace bouldering more because it's way okay. easier to do, way easier to do solo. And, um, you know, it doesn't take as much of the day. Sure. Yeah, because you can get in a good session in like three or four hours. So. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so Front Range obviously is like a really great place to um, to kind of pursue everything. So it's easy to be kind of a uh, sort of jack-of-all-trades. But, you know, I, I think um, – I don't know if we said this, but you're in Denver. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I mean, I like. I, I think I'm a terrible boulder. I'm a pretty, in terms of sport climbing, like I would consider myself a pretty solid, like five twelve climber. Like I, I would expect to do just about anything at those grades in a reasonable amount of tries. And I've done a couple of five thirteen minus, but I'd really like to solidify and get into the mid thirteens and kind of bone up at that range. Hell but yeah. man, I think bouldering is what holds me back because huh. when I get to something I can't do, it's usually like a crux and a series of moves mm. that I just can't stick. It's not endurance. I know it's not endurance. I think it's me. It's like, it's body positioning mm-hmm. and, um, attention and these sort of things. I think th- those are my big weaknesses. Like I, I spent years getting damn strong fingers and I think that paid dividends, but it's no longer a weakness for me. So I, I like, I love getting into like, now I'm just like being come obsessed with like, movement which i'm really hmm. thankful for in these times because i do have a home wall because i'd be going crazy just doing pull-ups because i haven't climbed outside in six plus weeks since mid-march mm-hmm. um which has been hard but um so I, I thankfully have like the tiniest little home wall it's like a 35 degree spray wall that i just decked uh, luckily i already had everything oh nice I had, home, I had a home wall in in texas that i when i moved to to Colorado, my garage was like made for a Model T and it's like tiny and crappy. <laughs> and I thought I actually might fall down if I put a wall on it. So I didn't do it. And I had a gym 10 minutes away. So I never really felt the need to. But when all the gyms closed and then I started getting the bad vibes about climbing outside, I was like, okay, we're putting that wall up. And so <laughs> I did that immediately. And so I've just become obsessed with like, and it's actually been really beneficial. Hmm, I'm trying yeah, to make the best of this time. I'm out there with like my camera filming everything. And again, it's like a, that, that, um, concept of effort. Like I am trying to only do things that I hate and it's really frustrating because <laughs> I'm trying to only set problems that like are everything I'm bad at, which is a lot, <laughs> but, um, so I got plenty of options. And so yeah, I've just been like, that's been my main focus for like six weeks now is like setting problems with just specific moves that just like, I don't hold tension in very well or, you know, I, I sag in the hips or whatever and just filming it and doing it again, watching it, doing it again. Neighbors walk by, look at me. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause now that's awesome. The, yeah. All the neighbors are walking incessantly. And so they all walk by my garage and look at me like I'm, weird and yeah no, i have a shirt on and it's, it's awkward i think i just said this on mikey's episode or i think we talked about this but um but i think filming yourself and reviewing is one of the most powerful things that any climber can do in the climbing gym 
It is. I mean, you know, and I, I used to do it a little bit. And then I, a couple of years ago, I worked with Nate Drolet at Power Company. And it was, he made me film everything for obvious reasons because he was a remote coach. Hmm. And, um, and obviously it was fantastic to have his feedback. But when that ended, like I was getting so much out of it and I had learned to look for things from working from him hmm. um, that I just got in the habit of it. And it's still a little awkward in a public gym, you know, like, sure. especially when it's like team night and there's like 15 year old girls running around. You got your camera perched in the corner and you're like, <laughs> I'm not filming you. you know? like, it's for me. And, uh, <laughs> but it's way easier at home, you know, and right. I can just like freely set up a tripod and, you know, cause I don't want anyone, you know, at a gym, people think you're going to like post it on Instagram and like just spray about it. And I'm like, right. no, this really is. To, but I agree. It's like, it's a game changer for me because you don't even know what you're doing wrong until you watch it. Hmm. I mean, I don't anyway. I'm just, I just don't have that natural feel of, I think some people have that really good, what is it? Uh, uh, pro, proprioceptive, uh, what's the term I'm looking proprioceptive for? Proprioceptive awareness, maybe? Yeah, yeah, where they can really sense their body's kind of movement through space. Yeah. I think I'm pretty bad at that, honestly. Okay, interesting. So, you know, you, you film yourself and you're like, damn it, I don't look like Sharma. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought I did. I modeled his haircut. I bought all the prana clothes and I still don't look like him. Damn. Nope. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I think bouldering for me is like if I can bone up in that category, I think I can kind of break through to the next level and, and uh, yeah, that'll be good. So, That's well, hopefully awesome. when the world opens up, I got all these fresh new pads that are just sitting in my garage falling on, falling <laughs> on them there instead of outside. And uh, hopefully we get to use them soon, man. I love it. Where yeah. uh, where are you most excited to go climbing first when things open up? Oh, that's a good question. Like locally or just like if I could go anywhere? Uh, how about realistic? Like as soon as things open in your region and you can just pop out for an evening or something, where are you excited to go? Oh, for an evening, man. Um, or, or a weekend day, whatever. I mean, you know, rifle season's coming up. That's always fun. I didn't mm. go there a lot. Um I didn't go there a lot uh, last season, mm -hmm. but um, it's always a good place to get a great ego smashing. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my god! <laughs> but um, no, I mean for bouldering, I you know I'd love to take a trip out to. Um, I, I'd like to go to the Northwest. Actually, I've never really climbed the Northwest. I'd love I'd love oh, to awesome. check out Leavenworth and Squamish and those areas. I've never. Do you know that Leavenworth that. is is totally my stomping grounds? Yeah, well, we talked about this because I saw your when I saw your on your area code, so I knew. You oh, were right, okay, in the area. that's right, yeah, yeah. And so I've always, I, you know, I lived in Portland for a year, but I didn't climb at the time, and I was like, kind of kicked myself because I've never been to Smith, I've never been to any of those places. So yeah, but for bouldering, I'd I'd like to go check out that stuff, and I think I'd be pretty bad at it, so that'd be good, like weird <laughs> compression stuff. So I don't know. Awesome. I think that would be fantastic. Any uh, specific projects that you're thinking about during those uh, during those home wall sessions when you're just training on moves that you suck at? Oh, man. Well, there's a local crag nearby. It's not publicized, so I can't really say much about it. But okay. it's, it's, it's certainly uh, more known now. There's a lot of cool stuff up there I'd like to do that's probably in the in sport climbing um, in like the, I don't know, probably low to mid-13 range I want to try. Awesome. You know, honestly, I didn't have... I had some like little mini, you know, bite and chew kind of projects I was working on in March, like in the 12 plus range that were fun, but you know, weren't like major projects and got one of them done, had almost one done before the world closed down. So maybe I'll go and finish that stuff up. But honestly, you know, I don't, 
I'm way less optimized in goal planning when it comes to climbing. I, I'm not really great at having like, okay, I'm going to do this project, which leads into this one for this major goal on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is actually a weakness of mine. I think I kind of, uh, if anything, I may sometimes go too easy on myself and I'm like, I don't really get out really uncomfortable on a big project. Like I, if I'm on something for like three to five days and like 20 some tries, like I'm starting to hate it. Sure. (laughs) Like, like I'm not really great at like, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I'm not sure. Like I don't go much beyond that. I usually try and do things in like 10 or so tries kind of my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And that's like a healthy project for me without like loathing it. Yeah. Doing the same warm ups (laughs) and all that stuff. But I think, I, I think, I don't know. I think I should probably try and throw in the occasional just like mega thing or just to see what that level feels like. At least mm. just get thrown around on it, you know? You know, I, that resonates with me. I think that is the, the value in that. I think there's a time and a place for that and maybe to and just to check in and maybe maybe find some inspiration in that really hard thing. You know, and there's different schools of, of thought on this, of course, but I'm kind of more with you where I think uh, spending most of our time doing things we can do in a pretty reasonable time frame and just always building that pyramid and building that base of experience. I think that's a, a really good investment of time. Yeah. I'm really into that and maybe too into it. I don't know. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Like what I was hoping to do with, you know, having left my job, I was like, sweet, I'm going to like spend months just like climbing and having fun. And then like the whole world shut down like three weeks later. Oh, um, I didn't realize <laughs> the timing was. <laughs> yeah. The timing was terrible. Like I, I left my job on February 7th. Okay. I, I went to Sicily the next day. Okay. Um, we were in Sicily for two weeks. That was great. But then I came back and was like, oh, okay, I'm going to like enjoy this like unemployed, fun employed life. And it was like literally about three weeks. So it was like late February is when I got back. And and then the last day of climb was March 18th. So hmm. um, yeah, it was that quick. And <laughs> so I was just hoping to like, I was going to experiment with just not going to the gym much and just like, I've never just fully climbed outside. Mm. Um and I listened to your interview with, with Jonathan Seacrest and he was like, man, I just had that killer year when I just climbed. And I was like, I've never done that. Right. I've never, I've never once spent like more than 50% outside of the gym. Totally. Um, so I was just going to like, just maybe not go to the gym for a while and just see what, like what happened with my climbing. If I just like actually climbed on rock more. Yeah. So, so that's your grand experience. I, I know. Exactly. Know, so. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, that's exactly, man, that's hitting home right now. <laughs> yeah so i'm jealous that was exactly my plan and uh here we are so making the best there'll come a time there'll come a time yeah yeah and uh i would i'm hoping to spend much of uh the fall in rifle so you know if things open up oh are you really yeah maybe i'll see you out there have you climbed there before i have just two really short trips like one week each yeah yeah i'm really excited to uh to have a little bit more time to invest in that place i really love it as you said it you know it's a real uh giant slice of uh humble pie which oh, man, which i'm good. all about i love it i know and because everyone there is like way strong and, <laughs> yeah. and there's that crew of people who have everything dialed there that make you feel extra shitty <laughs> they all, like do you mind if i warm up on this like go ahead <laughs> there will always be those people <laughs> for sure well uh yeah. so you've met you've mentioned a couple times that you also love cooking and i thought a fun question to ask yeah. I, was, I was looking through your blog and i came across another fun article it says the title of the article is how to make food at home that doesn't suck <laughs> and i just would love to ask uh do you have a favorite thing to cook that was pre-coronavirus too now you're gonna really need it um, <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> 
Um, do I have a favorite thing to cook? Um, or a new favorite thing that you've uh, tried during this whole Corona thing or yeah, anything that comes to mind? Well, I was just in Italy, so you don't go to Italy and not, you know, and not get into Italian food. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, I came back and I probably only cooked Italian food for, like, three weeks after <laughs> okay. I got back. Because I just couldn't let... And I actually always do that. Wherever I travel to, I even went to Germany, like, two years ago, and I was, like, making German food. And German food is not even that good. But I just, <laughs> you know, you get in this groove and you're like, you just want to, like, keep, keep on riding it. So, I, you know, like, I just love simple things. Like, if you just get a bell, bell pepper a red bell pepper and just char the shit out of it on your stove that's a roasted red pepper it's amazing you know you can buy that in a jar for eight dollars or you can go <laughs> buy the peppers and you can roast them you put them in a ziploc bag let them get cold uh -huh. strip all the charred stuff off cut them up put them in a tupperware with olive oil and garlic and that is amazing oh it's wow like yeah it's that simple are you using any oil on the stove or is it just directly just directly on the flame, like oh, right wow. on, right on the burner. Okay. Or if you've got a grill outside, like I love simple food. That's why I love like Italian. And I mean, my training's pretty Eurocentric, but I love like simple food, like Mexican food. And a lot of these cuisines come out of like when people didn't have money and they didn't have many ingredients. So they would make something with two or three ingredients. And I mm. love that stuff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think all this stuff's like fancy or gourmet. It's like, dude, all you're doing is sticking a bell pepper on an open flame until it gets black. <laughs> Like it's that simple and then just add some olive oil and garlic and just let it sit. Those things will last for weeks and they're really tasty. You can put them in salads, put them in anything. I mean, I just eat them raw, whatever. Awesome. I love little stuff like that. But in terms of, you know, this time of year, we start doing a lot of grilling because it's warm out and it's nice. Uh, let's see. I mean, my wife's big thing and not, we're into it too. is just simple stews. Like that's another time saving trip when we get back to the real world and you got to like actually go to work and stuff, you know, and you got to commute and you don't have time. Like we like to cook in batch. So, you know, we'll make a big batch of something. A lot of times it's just three or four ingredients, big stews in a pot and we'll eat it for four or five nights. Hmm. And um, so it's just really simple. You just reheat it every night and um, it's just, you know, vegetables, protein, just simple stuff. Just kind of all you need and nothing you don't. But one guilty pleasure Oh, I love uh, it. Let's do it. Yeah. Yes. Since returning to Italy, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm all good and no bad. I got, <laughs> I got bad things. Um, so I'd never heard of this stuff, but in Italy, limoncello, it's a big thing. I'm probably bastardized in the pronunciation. It's just this sugary. It's basically just sugar water and vodka. Okay. It's infused with um, zest from a lemon, like lemon zest. Mm -hmm. And so... I looked it up. We were drinking this stuff. And so what the Italians do is they drink it after a meal. It's like the digestive. Right? Mm. And so it's um, supposed to be for your digestion, but that's probably bullshit. But it tastes <laughs> really good. <laughs> but it's just vodka with sugar. It can't be good. Uh -huh. But uh, but it tastes amazing. And and so we were in um, this restaurant. We don't we didn't eat out much in Italy, but um, but we went to this one restaurant and this guy's like, oh, we're going to give you this. He's like, it's from the boss. <laughs> and so he gave it to us for free. I think he was just trying to impress us or whatever. But <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. And so I looked it up. And it's really easy to make. All you do is you take the zest of like 10 lemons. So you just like shave off the, the, the outer bit of the lemon. Uh -huh. And you can still use the interior of the lemon for other stuff. You take 10 lemons. I think the zest is like a whole bottle of vodka. And you just let that sit for like two weeks or a week. And then you add like a simple syrup. It's just water and sugar boiled down. And then let that sit for another two weeks. And it's like this delicious little tasty treat that I've mm. 
I got to admit, I've been having too many of them lately. <laughs> um, we've been following up meals, but man, it's like a nice little, you know, it's like a nice little finisher. Uh, sounds incredible. So, yeah, yeah. It's been right. really nice. And it's really easy to do it yourself. I love it. Yeah. So maybe I'll try to find a recipe to, to link to for people. Yeah, especially now it's the summer, they're nice and cold, they're great. What else are people going to do right now? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what about, uh, what about, <laughs> right, yeah, be careful out there, people. <laughs> what about fine dining? You've also mentioned that you love that and that's kind of a passion of yours. Is there a restaurant or a specific meal that you are most looking forward to after the quarantine? Oh, man. Um, you know, but fine dining, like we don't. I do that maybe twice a year in terms okay. of like going out. Like we'll do it for like our anniversary or like we have like a combined birthday dinner because our birthdays are pretty close. Okay, um, nice. So we don't do that often. It's one of those things, again, I think if you put in the time, you can honestly recreate a lot of that stuff at home. I mean, not to take away from what those people do. I mean, not really. They, they do really great work. Uh, man, is there like a meal? <sighs> you know, it's true. I haven't eaten. I haven't even gotten takeout in like six or eight weeks. We've only cooked our own food this whole time. Man, I could just go for something really simple. Like we have this wing place down the road. I keep walking by it, and it's driving me insane. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, "Man, I'm gonna have a salad that smells way better." Just get some wings. Honestly, yeah, I wouldn't mind just like getting some Mexican food or something. Like I don't even care about fine dining right now. Like I'm just craving just something. To just I don't know. I think like in times like this, you want comfort food. You know, right? Like, everyone's a little stressed. And nothing like stress to make you want to eat like some Mexican or some wings. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's probably, that's probably where I'd go. Just go get a burger or something. <laughs> <laughs> what about books? So you've mentioned a couple throughout the course of this podcast. You mentioned James Clear, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. You also mentioned Cal Newport's book, and I'll be sure to link to those. Sounds like you read a lot and you have a bunch of books that you recommend linked to your website. Is there a specific a favorite or most impactful book from maybe the last year that stands out that you'd recommend for people? Yeah. So I, I would say both those we already mentioned, I think, in terms of just nonfiction, just kind of like life optimization stuff. I, I would definitely recommend Atomic Habits. And I'd recommend, honestly, any of Cal Newport's books. He's got like three or four now on kind of these like career optimization or kind of meaningful work or productive time. He also did one that I wrote about called Digital Minimalism. Oh, okay. That's been on my list. Yeah, it's really good. You should read it. And it's it's kind of shocking. There's a lot of research into, you know, too much time on phones and social media and what that's doing to us. And um, that's really interesting stuff. But um, I also, like, I don't try and just only read that stuff. I'm not, like, one of those only, like, what is it? That would make me left-brained or something if I only listened to and read about just nonfiction life optimization. I like that stuff, but I try and balance it. Like, I'm a huge David Sedaris fan. Okay. If you guys don't know him, he's a uh, super sarcastic, witty kind of uh, satirist writer. He's, he, he writes a lot for, like, The New Yorker and The Atlantic. He's been on NPR a lot as a guest. But he, he's incredibly funny, and it's totally my sense of humor, like, very sarcastic. And it's just, like just observations of stuff in life and of his ridiculous family and just like just ridiculous stories that he just sees. He, he takes a journal every day and he writes down just funny things he sees in the world. And um, he's just a great storyteller. So that stuff, like very few things will actually make me like literally laugh out loud when I'm reading. <laughs> uh -huh. And David Sedaris is like a guaranteed laugh out loud kind of writer for me. So I would look into his stuff, Calypso and, um, 
what's the classic? Um, Me Talk Pretty One Day. Okay, I've heard of that one. Yeah, okay. check those out. Great, I'll and, link to those. And right now I'm reading The Stand, which is probably a bad idea. It's Stephen King's like mega epic novel about a virus that like, kills off everyone. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I read it like 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> and I didn't really remember much about it. And I remember liking it a lot. And I'm like, well, no better time than now in the middle of a virus. To oh, read that's funny. Virus. So, so that's like kind of guilty pleasure reading maybe. But Has it informed yeah. how you've navigated Corona virus at all? <laughs> oh, no, not really. That one's way worse. Everyone dies. So, okay. Yeah. I don't know. My wife's way more of a reader. She's a machine when it comes to books. I just read, I just read right before bed until I fall asleep. So I'm pretty slow, but, um, she actually has like reading goals. Like she's oh, wow. into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Reading goals. Yeah. She's like, I want to read this many books in a year, you know? Like, oh, gotcha. I just read until I fall asleep. So I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> Got it. I'm more like you. Yeah. What is something that you have been especially grateful for lately? Oh man, my wife, uh, especially now, uh, you know, I know it's an easy answer, but like we're quarantined. Most of the world's quarantined. I couldn't imagine like looking side eye across the room with somebody I didn't want to be locked down with, <laughs> whether that's a roommate or, you know, to be in a relationship that ain't solid. Um, she's my best friend in the world. If I got to spend every day locked in the same house as somebody, there's no better person. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it. so like, I'm eternally grateful for her. Like she puts up with all this crap. Like she doesn't like me being on the internet. She doesn't, you know, like she's still a huge supporter of everything I do. And that, that means a lot. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, the web website's clippingchains.com. Oh, and actually, now that we're on a client podcast, I can finally explain the name because no one ever gets it. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the personal finance world, they're like, what is this? You're like breaking the chains of bondage? You're like, well, sort of. It's like a it's like a double entendre. Is that only a sexual term, by the way? Double entendre? I don't know. I don't know. Let's but, roll with it. <laughs> but so obviously climbers get clipping chains, uh -huh. you know, clipping the chains are route. Right. But it is, it is about freeing yourself too. You know, there's okay. a lot of things we're held down by that we don't even know. So you kind of clip those little chains. And uh, so, yeah, I've been waiting nice. for the moment. I've been thinking about explaining the name of this website for like two years. You're like, it's clever. <laughs> I want everyone to know how clever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's no way I can. I've tried to explain like clipping chains, the climbing thing to people that don't climb. They're like, what? Like, okay. Yeah, that so is anyway, actually kind of weird. It that's is. Not, yeah, it is. that's not the most intuitive phrase. They just think we climb mountains. Right. And there's no chains. Yeah, there's mountains. a lot of layers that you have to kind of walk them through to, <laughs> to get to clipping chains. Yeah, if that makes sense. Exactly. Uh, what's so, the best yes. way for people to reach out? Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah. didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. No, no, I interrupted. I got off on this tangent. Yeah. So I'm at clippingchains.com. That's the website. I am on Instagram. I think it's the same name, Clipping Chains. I have a Twitter account, which climbers don't use, but everyone in personal finance does. So I interact with those kind of folks over there. Uh, I think it's Chains Clipping. Yeah, you can find me either way. And then okay. um, I have, I'll link I have to a con it. Yeah, I have a contact page on the website. I am very active about uh, responding to people because that's important to me. Some people ignore those sort of things. I don't. I will respond if you email me. And uh, yeah, so that's probably the best way to get in touch with me is through the website. I honestly, for all the digital minimalism reasons we already discussed, I'm not on the social media as much as I probably should. But I try and minimize my time there. So the website's good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, Chad, this has been a real pleasure. It was so fun to uh, to connect with you when you reached out. And, you know, at first I had read your article with Mike, of course, but um, it was really neat to get on the phone with you and hear what you had done 
you know, how you got interested in this financial independence thing and your own story and to hear that you've really made it happen and it's, it's uh, freed you to do to pursue clipping chains and to do this thing that you love. And I have really enjoyed a number of your articles already. And I think that a lot of people will get a lot out of this. So I really appreciate, appreciate your time. And it's been so, so fun to connect. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people can find something for them. And I think you said it best when it's a sliding scale and there's a lot of knobs, like there is no one right life or one right answer to get there. So yeah, I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Anything that um, that you'd like to share with people that we didn't get to? Oh man, no! I think we covered it. Okay. I appreciate it. You're you're very thorough. That's why <laughs> that's why we talked. I I told this guy for everyone that listens, he does his homework, and you should all subscribe to his podcast because he's going places. Because no one does <laughs> no one does their homework like Stephen. He's really thorough, and I appreciate that. So we covered everything. <laughs> everything <laughs> perfect well i'll uh yeah i'll t- i'll touch base with you soon and um we'll get some resources to point people to that'll that'll help them out if people want to dig in further yeah and remind me if i don't send you that spreadsheet to go dig it up because i'm pretty sure i've got one more or less ready to go okay perfect awesome man thanks so much thanks so much chad uh hopefully see you in rifle all right man <laughs> well stay cool in the van and uh yeah. Drive safe. I'll do my Keep best. Keep your distance, wash your hands, all that good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the home wall. All right. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Like we do it.